0: very much uh, thanks for the invitation to be with you again with CIT Echo and thank you for, for participating and signing up for this uh, important conversation today. Uh, so my topic uh, this afternoon is assisted outpatient treatment, uh, otherwise known as involuntary outpatient commitment or mandated community treatment orders and it's, uh, it's an intervention sort of at the intersection between the law, and community-based mental health treatment focused on a particular subgroup of adults with really serious mental illnesses. Not everybody, but people who have one of these uh, kinds of disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that really impair the brain's ability to reason and correctly perceive reality and to regulate mood and can be quite disabling. Um, can be mitigated by treatment. Treatment doesn't work uh, very well for everybody all the time, but, um, but of course part of the um, manifestation of the symptoms uh, for some people of really serious mental illnesses is it makes, them dif- it makes it difficult as a feature of the illness and the barriers that people encounter to, to participate in treatment uh, voluntarily on a consistent, in a consistent way. Um, So we're going to talk about outpatient commitment, kind of where it came from, um, whether it works and how it's being implemented or not implemented in the United States, and about the controversy um, as we think about how you balance in in thinking about the best interest of someone, trying to do what is going to improve outcomes for that person who uh, suffers from mental illness um, and, and assist them in their own recovery, how you balance um, the importance of autonomy, self-determination, we value in this country, uh, the right that people have to make their own decisions about important things such as healthcare, care, even if we don't necessarily agree with that decision. Um, and on the other hand, uh, how we think about incapacity uh, that might be a feature of illness and risk and so those things are kind of in the balance uh, in in this in this um, in in this topic of outpatient commitment we're going to talk about the effectiveness how it's implemented and then some ethical considerations the question of you know there's some things that might work but maybe we shouldn't do them because uh, there are ethical principles involved so I'm going to talk about you know some statistics and some numbers but uh, I thought maybe a place to start would be um, right here, if I can get this to advance, but it doesn't seem to be, there we go, uh, a case. You know, here is, um, here is a case, uh, uh, a man, we'll call him Mr. T, to start with, and um, so Mr. T is a client of a county-based uh, public behavioral health department. Um, he's 41 years old, he's intermittently employed, Um, he's been receiving counseling for a long time for a number of different accumulated diagnoses, agoraphobia, anxiety, depression, some paranoid symptoms, Um, he's a regular uh, user of cannabis, he injured his back and was prescribed an opioid analgesic, so some, some narcotic pain medication, He's been arrested one time for drunk driving, a misdemeanor a drunk driving offense. He's got a lot of anger. He's an angry fellow, and a lot of his anger is directed at the mental health clinic and at the staff. And he's seeking additional help and and uh, attention. He's not really getting what he feels he needs. His family and his girlfriend are concerned about him. Concerned about Mr. T. Are you concerned? Um, are you concerned about him? I mean, does he? I suppose if you've worked in the Public behavioral health system or uh, other systems. You you probably have met people like this. You know people like this. Uh, maybe you're worried about him, but there are a lot of people like this. Well, let me add one one little um, bullet point here uh, to help us answer that question of our concern, and it's this: that he stopped taking his prescribed medications. Um, that's uh, his choice. And now, are you you know any more worried about him? Um, um, you think differently about it, and then let me just add one one more thing, one little um, sticky note there at the bottom that Mr. T is a gun guy. He frequents gun shows, and he legally possesses a number of firearms. Um, now maybe maybe you're a little more worried about him, um, but again, there are a lot of people like this. So who's Mr. T? Why can, how can we make this menu at the top go away here of the slides? I don't know if we can, but uh, it's just going to sit there. Um, and, um, right, so how, who is this guy, and why do I even have his picture? Well, I've got his picture up there because he's well-known. His name is Scott Harlan Thorpe, and he's, he's well-known because he perpetrated a, um, a, a, a very uh, serious, uh, very disturbing uh, multiple homicide and um, and this where this happened is inside the behavioral health clinic with a handgun. He went into the clinic, and you talk about, well, we need people to come into the clinic. He was in the clinic when he, uh, when he did this, and he shot several people, one of whom was Laura Wilcox. And uh, Laura Wilcox was a 19-year-old college student who was uh, uh, working there in the clinic temporarily, and she died very tragically. Laura Wilcox became the namesake for California's outpatient commitment law. Uh, California's assisted outpatient treatment program was named Laura's law, uh, as uh, was the case with several other outpatient commitment laws. We have um, Kendra's law in New York named after Kendra Webdale, who was pushed in front of the path of an oncoming subway train by a man with schizophrenia. And we have Kevin's law in, um, in Michigan, uh, named after a Kevin Heisinger, who was, who was killed um, by, a, by a man named Brian Williams in the bus station in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, so um, here's some questions to ponder um, here about this as we think going forward about outpatient commitment. First of all, think about this incident, this <clears throat> shooting. Did mental illness cause this shooting? Is that is, this, is, is that what it's about, Mental mental illness, is that the cause? Uh, well, it probably wasn't the only cause. I mean, lots and lots of people have the same kinds of mental health problems, same kinds of symptoms, psychopathology as as, uh, as uh, Mr. Thorpe and, and would never do something like that. There were other factors that had to come together. A whole cocktail of factors probably. Was mental illness the major cause? If, if, if they are but for the mental illness, it wouldn't have happened. How do we think about that contributing to it? And then, I guess the next question is, was this somehow predictable? Well, you know, it seems like it. In the you know, after the fact, somebody should have been able to see this coming, and if so, was it preventable? So, who should have done something about this? Law enforcement, the mental health professionals, should they have done something? And you know, there's a law now named after uh, the victim of Scott Thorpe's shooting. Would that law would. Would Laura's law have saved Laura? Would court-ordered treatment have prevented the shooting? And then let's think about the, 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 the firearm involved, okay? Should Scott Thorpe have been legally prohibited from purchasing, purchasing a gun? He legally, if we think so, that he shouldn't have had access to that really efficient killing technology at the time when he was in that crisis. What record that he had should have disqualified him? Should his drunk driving conviction have disqualified him from buying a gun? Um, And let's say he did have a gun disqualifying record. He bought his guns at gun shows. Do you think he should have had a background check? And if he had a background check, would that have deterred him? All these are questions. It's easier to ask these questions than to pose the answers. But I I wanted to kind of start with that. So what happened to Scott Thorpe the legal disposition of his homicide charge? Three different things. He was incompetent to stand trial. Uh, initially, he was um, so committed to a secure forensic facility for a while. Then he was restored to competency, and he pleaded uh, guilty to murder and was incarcerated. Um, Nick and Amanda Wilcox are uh, Laura's parents. I've, I've met them several times. They're wonderful advocates, uh, and they're advocates for two very different kinds of uh, interventions or responses to a tragedy like this. I mentioned outpatient commitment, Laura's Law, that was California's AB 1421. It was passed in 2002. That's California's outpatient commitment law. It was passed as a statewide measure, but, it, but the way the county system works in California is each individual county had to approve it and fund it individually. That's an issue regarding implementation, and really nothing happened except for that one county in Nevada County near Lake Tahoe where Laura was, uh, was killed. Um, years later, in, in, in about 2014, Wilcoxes were key advocates for a very different kind of intervention or response. And that was California's AB uh, 1014, the gun violence restraining order. And that was enacted in the aftermath of a shooting in uh, Isla Vista, California. Elliot Roger was a young man who was very disturbed and police officers were called to uh, evaluate him in a social welfare check and they determined he didn't meet criteria for involuntary detention. But he had a cache of firearms, and it was uh, he became kind of the poster person for this because if California had had the gun violence training order in effect at the time, it would have given them the authority to search for and remove his guns. Uh, so, and the Wilcoxes are sort of right there in that, you know, with their family tragedy, the loss of their daughter, at that intersection between thinking about. Inadequate treatment and what we might do to make sure that people who need treatment get that treatment and, and particularly people who um, uh, For whatever reason we don't understand very well is that all of those uh, Symptoms can come together and might increase risk of harm to self or others and then Assuming we will always have some people who pose a risk to self or others in a way that it's hard to predict what do we make sure that, do to make sure someone like that doesn't necessarily have a gun? Um, so these are, my topic is really outpatient commitment today, but as you can see, particularly in our country, these topics have, have become intertwined, both in terms of the advocacy for these laws and how people sometimes think about them. So what what is uh, outpatient commitment? Um, where did it come from? What are the key elements of it? I'm um, trying to... Um, remember the title to my slide up there which is obscured but um, yeah that would help actually so it's a civil court order Uh, it requires certain people with a serious mental illness to comply with recommended treatment and receive services Um, we also say that it also commits the system to the patient so it's kind of a two-way prioritization um, where a, a, a person has a court order and the the outpatient care system um is uh is committed to providing uh care for that person um although not necessarily in a in a legal way but that's really how we think it works it's two things really it's a treatment plan wrapped in a legal order so um you you have the court order but what's inside of it i mean that's all by itself kind of an empty vessel what really is important is what are the services inside that treatment plan that is that is ordered uh, under outpatient commitment? Um, typically it includes some kind of intensive case management or assertive community treatment, a team approach to uh, kind of wrapping around uh, someone in the community to make sure not only that they uh, are able to participate in the treatment that they need, uh, whether that's medication, psychosocial treatment, those are often included in the treatment plan, uh, but also that they have access to housing um, and the kinds of supportive uh, scaffolding, shall we say, around someone who's, who is, uh, you know, challenged with the disorders such as schizophrenia uh, in this way. Um, they're, they're, the sanction for not adhering to it is a little different than most court orders, right? If you have a court order uh, from a judge and you don't follow it, you just blow it off, well, you can get a criminal contempt citation, a contempt of court. That doesn't happen with these orders. They're designed to be non-criminalizing. So uh, that's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's good. But on the other hand, uh, some clinicians say it doesn't have a lot of teeth, a lot of uh, enforcement authority, because what happens when someone doesn't comply with the treatment order, um, the, the the sanction or what can happen there as a result really is only that the person is transported to a facility for evaluation, um, and at that point, hopeful persuasion to take uh, the treatment, but if they don't and they refuse at that point, they are, they don't meet commitment inpatient commitment criteria. Then, then basically, there's nothing that can be done. There's no forced medication in the outpatient setting. Now, I hasten to add that. It doesn't mean that people on outpatient commitment don't believe that they are uh, required legally to take medication, go to the mental health center, and participate in the treatment. And in fact, we've done a study showing that about 85% of a group of adults on outpatient commitment in North Carolina believed that they were legally required, legally obligated to take medication. And people act on the basis of what they believe to be true. And sometimes they call this the, the black robe effect, that a judge tells somebody to do something, they think they have to do it. Um, so as a, as a um, legal tool, what outpatient commitment does is it extends the state civil commitment authority from the institutional setting into the community, into community-based mental health care. So people uh, have the right, uh, unless they are uh, you know, dangerous or uh, mentally incompetent, um, to be in the community free from, uh, free from uh, coercion if they haven't committed a crime. Um, but there are certain situations under which, and to refuse treatment, I mean, we all have the right to refuse medical treatment, but there are certain situations where that right to, over, to, to refuse treatment and to refuse intervention can be overridden. And one is uh, when someone uh, is dangerous, and there's, you know, are you all familiar with the, pol- sort of the police powers of a state? If someone is about to do something dangerous, you can intervene. Um, to stop that and uh, and then there is the doctrine of parents patriae where the state can uh, take care of someone sort of in the role of a parent who is unable to take care of him or herself. Outpatient commitment emerged in the United States in the aftermath of deinstitutionalization in the middle of the 20th century there were probably 500,000 people with serious mental illnesses uh, that were um, locked up in in, uh, large state hospitals Sometimes for long periods of time, uh, you know, taking major tranquilizers, and and then there, what emerged was a real cri- a critique, a social critique of the asylum that that this was, um, uh, you know, a, a, an illegitimate thing for the state to do to just lock people up who, you know, weren't criminals um, and hadn't been afforded due process commensurate with the deprivation of that liberty. And so there were some key court court cases in the 1970s, uh, Donaldson versus O'Connor and several others that basically um, changed the commitment criteria so that uh, people had to be dangerous to self or others in order to, and mentally ill. And uh, and the dangerousness really kind of had to be related to their mental illness in order to qualify for a civil commitment. there were many other forces, of course, pushing that, that pushed deinstitutionalization. Um, there was you know a, a new kind of therapeutic understanding that, that, um, and a new generation of pharmacotherapies that worked better in the community, so people could be in the community with better treatment. Uh, and the idea that being locked up in an institution for long periods of time was part of what kept people ill. There was that idea that it was much more healthy and salubrious to be in the community. Um, and uh, there were cost considerations and so on. But what was, what was expected is that after deinstitutionalization ran its course, sweeping all these people out of the state mental hospitals, that the community care system would rise up in its place and provide those kinds of services and help people, and people would recover. And that never quite materialized in the way that, it was, uh, that was expected, uh, and there are reasons for that having to do with Uh, with legislation and and the defunding of the um, Community Mental Health uh, Center's uh, programs in the 1980s. Um, And also, you know, just the uh, development of really definitive treatments for for mental illnesses, uh, you know, uh, hasn't quite kept up with what people hoped would be the case. There is is still a challenge. so what happened was many people in the aftermath of deinstitutionalization in many cities all over the United States fell into this pattern, where people would leave the hospital and uh, would then not do very well at the community. Partly because they wouldn't take medication that they were prescribed, um, that was that was the theory of what was happening anyway. And then and then they would deteriorate to the point where they would need to be in the hospital, they'd come back to the hospital. And what developed was this cycle of revolving door uh, admissions. And uh, we've had people in our studies in North Carolina who had been involuntarily committed dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And if there would be a way to interrupt that cycle, which is is harmful to people and prevents long-term recovery, that's what outpatient commitment was supposed to do, was to provide that uh, extra uh, structure of a court-mandated um, a treatment order, it began really as a form of conditional release. Someone's in the hospital, they can be released on a, a set of conditions, but then they can be brought back if they don't do well without uh, having a re-commitment. Um, there are actually three types of outpatient commitment, more variations on it than that, but three main types I guess. Uh, conditional release, one I just mentioned, where there's sort of a trial visit in the community where someone starts in the hospital. Uh, Then there is the alternative to hospitalization on the front end uh, where someone meets the inpatient commitment criteria. They're found to be dangerous to self or others. But as an alternative to going into the hospital, they're placed into a community program, a community setting. And, and, you know, that's the form that was quite common. Uh, It it was, you know, legally not very problematic, but it wasn't very practical either because if you imagine – that someone has already been found to be dangerous, to meet the commitment criteria to be in the hospital, a lot of risk-averse psychiatrists would then say, well, wait a minute, we've just found this person dangerous. Do we want to put them out in the community? What if something goes wrong? Then we might be held liable. So the third kind of outpatient commitment is the more useful one, and it's the one um, that it's often called preventive outpatient commitment. It's, it's um, uh, similar to the statute that I understand uh, New Mexico has has passed. Um, and 35 states in the D.C. Uh, have that. What that is, is that court-ordered treatment in the community can be authorized at a lower threshold than inpatient commitment. You don't have to be imminently dangerous. You can be, it, what happens is there's a determination made, sort of a three-part determination that Based on what we know about the nature of your illness, it's going to prevent you from participating on your own voluntarily with treatment. And if you don't do that, it's likely we can predict you're going to deteriorate. And if you do deteriorate, you're going to become dangerous. Now, whether the science is there to make all those nested predictions about noncompliance and deterioration and risk is a separate matter. But this is kind of the logic of it. You intervene upstream. Right. And it's also controversial because, you know, and on the criminal side, you say, well, this is kind of like preventive detention. We don't lock people up because we think they might commit a crime in the future. But that's kind of what, you know, the critics of it say that you're doing here. It's you're you're, you're depriving someone of liberty, overriding their right to refuse treatment on the basis of what you know they might do. Now, what if they've already done? Um, And no outpatient commitment uh, Four states. i I'm sorry that I need to update this now because New Mexico is not, is not in that state They're in a, that group. This is an older slide. Um, so the criteria, just to give you an example from North Carolina, which was the sort of the pioneering uh, preventive outpatient patient permit statute that was sort of the model for uh, new york's uh, aOt and and California's uh, you know AOT Kendra's Law, you have to have a presence of a serious mental illness. There has to be the capacity to survive in the community with available supports. You don't want to put someone out there on outpatient commitment order if really they're just not going to be able to survive and meet, meet their you know, daily uh, needs with available supports. Um, and then the, what I just mentioned, kind of the clinical history indicating a need for treatment to prevent deterioration that would predictably result in dangerousness and a mental status that limits or negates the person's ability to make informed decisions to seek or comply voluntarily with recommended treatment. So there has to be some, some kind of, uh, of uh, incapacitation of one's decision making, but it doesn't, doesn't rise to the threshold of, of, of like a legal mental incompetence where someone would be assigned a guardian. Um, but but, it, but there, is, there is some limitation of uh, a person's ability to, 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 to make these decisions and to comply voluntarily with treatment. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about outpatient commitment. It's really um, something that has fractured the mental health stakeholders uh, community uh, and almost like sometimes like kind of a civil war over this because um, you have on the one hand uh, the sort of benign medical paternalistic view uh, that is articulated probably mm-hmm. uh, most notably by Fuller Torrey who started the Treatment Advocacy Center that actually advocated for and and, and, and pushed and helped to get enacted many of the outpatient kind of statutes. That and um, a quote from Fuller Torrey mandatory treatment for those who are too ill to recognize they need help is far more humane than our present mandatory non treatment. That's kind of hyperbolic, but what he's saying is we've made it so difficult, put so many barriers up to, to providing care and treatment to people in the community. And, you know, he, he'll he say, you know, we don't allow our grandparents with Alzheimer's disease to wander around on the street with no treatment just because they say they don't want it. And that would be inhumane. What society does that? Then why do we do it with young adults with schizophrenia? You know, if you might see someone with schizophrenia just talking to themselves in a park. I mean, why would we do that? And that's... On the other hand, you have the view of the... Civil libertarians and the advocates such as the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law who see this really as a failure of the system to provide services that are needed in a way that's accessible. And if it's an access problem, if it's a service problem, why would you respond to that by giving someone a court order to uh, participate in treatment? You know, And, and uh, the statement from on outpatient commitment is not a quick fix that can overcome the inadequacies of an under-resourced and underperforming mental health system. You know, if we need to reinvest in public behavioral health systems and pro- build the capacity to do things we know how to do, like assertive community treatment, let's do that. Do that first before we say, well, we're gonna start putting people on court orders. That's, uh, that's their view. And, and, you know, if you think about it from the point of view of someone who is struggling to recover from a mental illness, they're in the community, and then they could say, well, you know what? I'm not um, dangerous right now. I'm not mentally incompetent. I'm not criminally accused. On what basis are you gonna override my uh, uh, and limit my liberty like this? And so, um, although most outpatient commitments actually start in the hospital and move to a less restrictive alternative, we'll talk about that in a minute, So here's my, now we can't see what this says, but uh, behind that uh, label it says recovery land. Okay, so that's recovery land up at the top. And this is the sanguine view of how, of the logic for outpatient commitment. You have on this side of the river, this dark foreboding place, this serious mental illness world and people have untreated symptoms. They might have social problems like lack of employment and sometimes homelessness or involuntary hospitalization, police encounters, jailers, grim picture, and then over on the other side there is this sunny place called Recovery Land, and they can't get there. Why? Well, they can't get there because it's this raging, roiling river, and what that is is poor insight and non-adherence. That's the idea, is that people can't act in their own best interest because they have an inability to recognize that they have a mental illness, that they need treatment, and the term for this is often used, apart from neurology, anosognosia. And uh, non-adherence, and so what outpatient commitment does is it comes along and it builds this structure, this bridge over the river. Right? <laughs> there's outpatient commitment, and there's a case manager. They really hold the, hand, right? And then and the case manager, uh, uh, you know, is committed to this too, and they walk together across the bridge into recovery land. Okay, you know, this slide is one that of the crown achievements. Hey. Hey. Great. Yeah, you yes, have to have a is. black a black belt in PowerPoint to make it. <laughs> um, so, so that's the that's the ideal. Okay. But now here's another picture of the um, uh, of the not so sanguine view of what it is, And it's this picture. Okay. There's recovery land up the top of those steps. Okay. And here's a person with a disabling condition, and you can see he's got a sign on the back of his chair that says, I'm not dangerous, I'm not incompetent, and what he would like to do is actually get treatment on his own terms and drive his wheelchair to recovery land. He can't do it. Why? Because there are all these barriers in the way, and what outpatient commitment cynically does is it puts up a sign and says, mandatory treatment this way, but we're not building a ramp, right? We're not doing what we need to actually uh, overcome those barriers to care. And I think those two images in my mind kind of capture this this kind of um, collision. And often these arguments kind of pass like ships in the night because they're, they're really arguing about different things, different kinds of populations. If we could focus on, well, what does the group really look like that could benefit from outpatient commitment? That very small group that at great social cost and cost to themselves have this deleterious pattern of revolving door hospitalizations that could we do something? Instead of arguing about is it does it work or not, is it good or bad? But who should it be targeted to? Um, The American Psychiatric Association has a position statement about outpatient commitment. A resource document and, and I'll just run through basically what they say as a as an expert group representing this professional organization that if it's systematically implemented, involuntary outpatient and, and resource very important if systematically implemented and resourced those are the big ifs right there uh, it can be a useful tool to promote recovery through a program of intensive outpatient services it's designed to improve treatment adherence to reduce relapse and rehospitalization and decrease the likelihood of dangerous behavior or serious or severe deterioration among a subpopulation of patients with severe mental illness the goal of it is to mobilize appropriate treatment resources enhance their effectiveness improve an individuals adherence to the treatment plan it should not be considered as a primary tool to prevent acts of violence. Okay, that, if, if we want to think about violence in society as a separate public health problem, serious mental illness contributes about 4% to that. So you know, we could use all the tools and tricks of the trade and cure mental illness tomorrow, which would be wonderful. And our violence problem in society would go down by about 4%, and the rest of it would still be with us. So it's not where you'd start, really, to just reduce violence. Um, And In terms of their view in the statement about what the studies have shown is that that it shows that involuntary outpatient commitment is most effective when it includes, and here it talks about the treatment plan, a range of medication management, psychosocial services equivalent in intensity to those provided in assertive community treatment. It's no accident that ACT teams and intensive case management are included in many of the treatment plans in the jurisdictions where this has been used effectively, and New York being probably the, the main example. And the states invo- adopting uh, involuntary outpatient commitment statutes should assure that adequate resources are available to provide such intensive treatment to those under commitment. So you have to have the treatment capacity in place. It should come with an appropriation if law is being passed. And a system that is uh, integrated between inpatient and outpatient. I mean, we don't always want to see hospitalization as a failure of community care. Sometimes people have an illness where they need at certain times in their treatment and illness trajectory need inpatient treatment and can't get it. And there and there is no bed for that person. And maybe outpatient commitment, part of what it can do is help people access a level of intensive services in the continuum of care that might be needed but to do that in a way that's not reactive and crisis driven but, but is driven by a person's uh, their, their, their own uh, a trajectory of illness. Um, so this is, uh, this is a slide that displays um, the, the, the implementation of active outpatient commitment or AOT programs throughout the United States, it comes from a, an article uh, in psychiatric services by Meldrum and colleagues uh, in 2016. The blue states are those that they determined through their uh, through their surveys uh, had active AOT programs. Um, there's been some criticism of the methodology and you know whether or not the information that they got was always uh, um, you know if they, if you call up a person and you say you know, In a state, you have an active AOT program, and you're not talking to the person who knows that. Maybe you might not get the best information, but I think this is informative as far as it goes. Um, if you cross-tabulate the states that have a, an active AOT program, according to Meldrum and colleagues, and the statutes that are what I've termed preventive outpatient commitment laws... Uh, you get this distribution here. So on the bottom row, you have 20 active AOT programs. Notice that 15 out of those 20 are in states that have a preventive outpatient commitment law. So there are some states that claim they have that, that they have an active AOT program uh, with one of the older style laws, uh, although it's, it's, a, it's, it's not very many. Um, they found in this article that the AOT programs, you know, you have the AOT law, but you have an AOT program as well that gives this kind of higher level of case management and accountability um, for the services that are being provided. There was a lot of variability in the style of implementation, the how the statutory criteria are actually applied, um, and as you can think about, I mean, look at those criteria in North Carolina's uh, law, they might be open to quite a lot of discretion uh, in terms of what it really means. Um, and a person might qualify for outpatient commitment in one state and another state they might not. Depends, for example, on whether or not, in mean, New York you have a, in some, uh, some regions an active uh, mental health hygiene legal service that, that actually actively defends uh, consumers who are subjected to or proposed for outpatient commitment. Um, trying to, you know, quash the order or limit the treatment plan, assuming that it's it's an adversarial proceeding. Other areas, uh, the mental hygiene legal services takes a different approach, and their view is like, well, we're trying to do what we think is also in the best interest of this person, and there's a more collaborative approach. So that may vary from place to place. In the treatment plans and how it's monitored and how do you know what the treatment plans being followed and the number of participants involved. Um, There are some programs around the United States that have, you know, gone to a great effort to try to put an AOT program in place. And they actually have a very, very small number of consumers uh, participating in these programs. And that's partly because to meet the criteria, you have to, it's actually quite stringent and, and, and not everybody can qualify. And sometimes they don't have the capacity as well to provide it for many other people. There are three implementation models that these authors identified which they term community gateway, hospital transition and surveillance. A community gateway is, the idea there is you've got people out there who have serious mental illnesses and are not being treated very adequately and are not having good outcomes. And AOT a- a- is a way to, to bring them in. It's a gateway into community treatment. Uh, the hospital transition model, it really is, is probably far more prevalent and that is people start uh, in, at a moment when they've been involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. And the AOT order is a less restrictive step down from hospitalization into the community. And sometimes enables people to leave earlier than they would have otherwise. And then the surveillance you know, idea is you have people now in the community um, and how do we just make sure that they don't fall through the cracks? How do we just maintain their treatment plan. And this gets to the question of how long should AOT last? I mean, is it, is it something that is just a, an avenue to get people into treatment after which they will voluntarily continue to participate in treatment and, and benefit from it? Um, you know, the, I guess the metaphor in, from a different branch of medicine, say, you know, orthopedics would be, is this like a, a cast? for a fractured leg, and after the leg heals, then you take the cast off, and the person's gonna walk just fine? Or is it more like a permanent prosthetic device for someone who's always gonna need that extra structure? Um, and you know, do you think about outpatient commitment as something that should be withdrawn as soon as possible because it's sort of punitive and it's just and it's tasteful, and so the minute someone really is doing well, then you pull it away because you don't wanna keep that in place. Or do you think of it as well? Maybe this is why it's working. So if a person's doing well, keep it in place, renew the order, and keep it going. Those are two different ways of looking at it. Um, common problems with implementing AOT: number one, inadequate resources. I mean, that's a, you know, uh, that is just a symptom of, of, of behavioral health in our country, which is. Uh, under-resourced and overburdened and fragmented. It doesn't work very well for lots of people and, and AOT isn't going to fix that and, and it will be, a, or not least all by itself, unless it can be a way to bring more resources to the table. Lack of enforcement power, inconsistent monitoring, um, weakness of interagency collaboration. I mean this is a program that really requires different agencies to work together. Um, and, you know, in, in ways that are that are distinctive for local municipalities and jurisdictions that do it. Um, uneven implementation, not only within but across states, part of that has to do with, it, with the disagreement that people have over it. I mean, there's a lot of ambivalence out there. There's some judges that don't like it. There's some clinicians that don't like it. Some do. Um, and the arguments are sometimes that it's, um, you know, um, it... It's, it's difficult and sucks up a lot of resources doing something that might not be necessary, uh, or that it's countertherapeutic that um, you know the, the best way to actually help someone, a mental health client is not to give them a, an order to do something because uh, that's going to alienate them from treatment. and the minute you know they're not forced anymore. So there are disagreements about it. Um, and difficulties, you know under the funding constraints. And, and then you know there are these statutes, and some of them are written in ways that are burdensome. I mean, you have to, for example, the criteria that of likely to benefit, well, how do you know if someone's likely to benefit, or criteria that someone has to have already had a number of hospitalizations or episodes of violence and, and um, so that's kind of a small you know eye of the needle to thread to get someone on EOT sometimes. How common is outpatient commitment? It's hard to know. We did a survey with the MacArthur Research Network a number of years ago in five sites around the country, and um, the uh, the survey uh, found that somewhere well across the sites, between 12 and 20% of the sample of people with serious mental illnesses reported that at some time in the past, they had uh, experienced outpatient commitment, something they defined as outpatient commitment. That's nested in this larger phenomenon that we termed leveraged outpatient treatment because there are other forms of legal and, and, and social welfare uh, leverage where, and we're familiar certainly with, um, with leverage in the criminal justice system, uh, someone as a condition of probation, uh, which could be uh, ordered to participate in treatment, or, or as a... Form of criminal diversion in a in a in a mental health court or a jail diversion program, and that leverage is held out over that person. Uh, either you do this or you take your chances with your criminal um, uh, sanction or sentencing. And we have in the social welfare system contingencies that might be um, you know used. And the two two common examples are people who have a representative payee for their. Um, their benefits, their disability benefits from the Social Security Administration and the representative payee can say, you know what, you're not going to get your spending money unless you, you know, go to the mental health center Um, and likewise subsidized housing. If someone's living in a Section 8 or uh, housing arrangement and as a condition of the lease or informally you can't live here unless you go to treatment. And we studied these with the MacArthur Network and actually Leveraging of money and housing was was felt to be more coercive than a than a, than a court order from a civil court to participate in treatment. Um, a lot of people feel that was even you know more of a pinch there so um, what about the the evidence for outpatient commitment well there there have been three randomized trials um, uh, two in the United States. Um, one at Bellevue Hospital in around 2000 was published the results of that one. Um, our study in North Carolina which is a randomized controlled trial uh, where people were it started in the hospital and they after an involuntary commitment and they were ordered to outpatient commitment and then we got permission from the district court judges to randomly assign people and if you get heads and you stay on outpatient commitment if you get tails you get a voluntary case manager, but your outpatient commitment orders vacated. And then we followed them for a year to see what would happen uh, in, you know, people who had case management with and without the order. And I'm going to talk about the results of that study. Um, and then we have a, a very large um, study done, many papers published from it. Um, well, actually, I forgot to mention the UK Octet Study, uh, Tom Burns' work, in which he replicated in the UK... Uh, our outpatient commitment randomized trial. Um, Slight variations on it um, and got a very different result. And there's controversy around that. And we have disagreed in print over that and and had had debates at the Royal College of Psychiatrists about outpatient commitment and those studies. Then in in New York, um, I was part of the group with my colleague Marvin Swartz. We were co-principal investigators of A legislatively mandated evaluation of New York's AOT uh, program Uh, and that was a that had the advantage of lots more um, participants lots more people uh, over a bigger area and we could use quasi-experimental evaluation Uh, and then you know there have been some evidence reviews um, Cochrane Collaborative and there's a new one now as well Um, The big picture summary is that I would think this would be a fair enough statement that the evidence for the effectiveness of outpatient commitment is mixed. Success is largely conditioned on investment and effective implementation. So if you just pass a law, you don't do anything to implement it. There's no reason to think it's going to work. The availability of intensive community-based services. So if you don't have the ACT teams and you don't have the intensive case management capacity, you don't have the psychiatrists, and you think that all you're going to do is just pass this law, it's a lot like the guy standing in front in the wheelchair looking at the staircase, and it's just not going to get him up the stairs um, and enable him to do that. And then also the duration of the court order. It's kind of like if it it doesn't have enough time actually to work, then a long term is not going to be effective. Um, kind of like you know taking an antibiotic and antimicrobial treatment for an infection and stopping the treatment after one day and thinking that it done, d- didn't work because your symptoms didn't go away or even got worse. I mean, that's the analogy from another area of medicine. So here's an example, a key finding from our 1990s Duke Mental Health Study. This is the prob- the, the odds ratio of a hospital readmission during any given month in the one-year trial. And the control group, 135 people, and the outpatient commitment group randomly assigned. And the odds ratio there is 0.64, which means that that you know that they were 0.64 times as likely to be um, admitted in any given month in a time series uh, analysis. Uh, and that was statistically significant. Now, if we had stopped right there and just published that, there would have been a lot less... Um, Uh, of a kerfuffle about our study, but we didn't. What we thought would, would be important is to also look at how much outpatient commitment people got. Because there were people that came out of the hospital on a trial visit and they got just a few days or weeks of outpatient commitment and then they were not renewed. And it turns out that that group who got very little outpatient commitment didn't do any better than the control group. And the group that actually were the benefit was concentrated was the group that got a significant period of time. Now, the problem with that is we couldn't randomly assign how much outpatient agreement got. We could only randomly assign where they started from. So we had to use other methods kind of post hoc just to compare these people. And we found actually that the people who got renewed uh, were people who had baseline had had uh, a, a higher uh, score on you know, previous non-compliance and, and, and poor insight into illness. And we had a very systematic protocol in place where people, the treatment team, had to, had to consider and check off all the criteria for renewal if they were going to not renew someone. So um, I, we think that, um, that that the most um, likely explanation for the finding really is that, that it takes a while for the benefit uh, to kick in and, and, and if you don't uh, keep it in place very long, it can just alienate people or not provide the benefit. But not everybody agrees with this. The other thing is we, that we found is that the benefit of outpatient commitment in our study was conditioned on, pro, on the provision of a certain threshold of intensive services in the community. Um, so greater or lesser than three service events per month. And you see these two panels. And the panel on the left, this is the cumulative likelihood of admission to the hospital, readmission during the trial in three groups, uh, those who got um, no outpatient commitment and those who got uh, between 1 and 179 days and those who got more than 180 days. And those three uh, trend lines on the left aren't statistically significantly different from each other. In the panel on the right, you can see those are the people where the, the service events were pro- provided above that threshold of three service events per month. And now you can see there's a big separation and statistically significant The group that really does the best are those that have the longer term outpatient commitment with that with the services and the other two groups uh, did not. So then moving on to the study in New York, uh, I mentioned this, this is a legislatively mandated study, um, observational data with multivariable analysis. Uh, we compared both pre and post and propensity matched comparison uh, groups and uh, we had 3,500 oh, 3, and some AOT uh, uh, people on AOT uh, on Medicaid. That was also the data that we used for Medicaid data. And the, hospital, the outcomes were hospital use, medications, and just the receipt of ACT, uh, sort of community treatment or intensive case management, any case management. Just to summarize, the basic results of this study is that um, The the things you'd want to to, to increase, in fact, increased, and the things you want to decrease, decreased. So you want outpatient commitment to make it more likely people are going to get on ACT teams and intensive case management. that happened, the likelihood of that increased, you know, 242%, partly because that's in the treatment plan in the first 180 days, and then 282% beyond that. Medication possession, we looked at the pharmacy records from the Medicaid uh, feed and we, you know, calculated the medication possession ratio. that people have in their possession um, the, the medication that they needed? That also went up. In hospital admissions, went down. In days hospitalized, also um, went down uh, uh, significantly. Um, some people criticized uh, our study by saying, well, it was just all about the services. It's just about ACT teams and intensive case management, and if you could just give people ACT and ICM if they needed it, why would you need the court order? Um, and we, we um, um, used case manager data to show that, that hospitalization was reduced by adding AOT to ACT. So the monthly probability of hospitalizations reduced, as it says here on the slide, 53, 43 to 57%. Or per- participants who received AOT plus intensive services compared to those who just had ACT or ICM alone. So the court order added something. Um, you know, um, let me see if I can make this go back one. Right, here we go. So, um if you really, you know, the sort of the coin of the realm and, and, and the rhetoric of persuasion to policymakers is what? Money, right? That's what they often care about. So we, we um, did a cost study uh, looking at the, um, and, you know, established sort of unit costs for, for treatment and looking at the actual billing records. And um, what you see here in this slide, uh, these three bars are three periods of time. The red bar is the 12-month period before someone um, was discharged from hospital onto an AOT uh, order. So this is before AOT. The yellow bar in the middle is the first 12-month period after discharge to AOT. And then the second is the 12-month period uh, the second 12-month period. So this is after people are probably off of AOT because mostly people sort of graduated from it after six months. And so if all you had to look at, and those are dollars, average dollars per patient, you would say, gosh, we've really um, spent, we're spending a lot more money on these people now because the, 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 six, the, the 12 months before they got on AOT, we were spending on average, you know, $5,000 and now we're spending $15,000 and then $12,000 but if you if you say well wait a minute let's look at the inpatient costs over here and now it's a very different story look at the inpatient costs during the 12 months before outpatient commitment started $49,000 in hospitalization costs per person in the New York State Office of Mental Health and about the same for Medicaid hospitalization so that red bar there if you think about it is a big potential cost offset because look at how those costs go down for the second two bars. They go way down to 11,000 and 13,000, I'm trying to read this without my glasses, but you can see this very graphically. So um, it looks like a pretty good investment if you then put that in the context of the inpatient treatment as well. You can't just easily just take inpatient dollars and move them into the community. It doesn't quite work that way directly, but, but the big picture you can see here. So does outpatient commitment work after all this? Is that the question? That's the question I was supposed to debate Tom Burns and, you know, the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Does it work and does it not? And he says it does not. And that's, you know, his, he's kind of like an evangelist for that now. And um, I uh, actually posed a different version of the question i, you know, i said i'm a professor and i'm going to answer this question for you and the answer is it depends. that's actually the right answer to a lot of things. it's not very satisfying but it is it is the right answer. Uh, it depends a lot on what we mean by outpatient commitment, right? i mean what what which which one of the types are we talking about? What do we mean by work? Okay, what's the, what do we count as success here? I mean, what do we expect it to do? Are we just looking at hospitalizations? Are we looking, we did a paper on, you know, showing people who are less likely to get arrested. Are those the outcomes? Or do we actually want to improve people's lives long-term in ways that are meaningful to them? And if that's the goal, well, maybe you're going to get a different answer to it. Um, what do we mean? Does it, does it work compared to what? Right, compared to the same people before on outpatient commitment, compared to people on voluntary services, um, you know, uh, compared to uh, people in other countries that have a totally different social safety net. I mean, the comparison is very important. Um, you know, and and um, that it doesn't work for whom? right? That's a big one because it, it's clear that it's not for everyone. And you have to figure out who are the people who couldn't really benefit from it. How do we define that group and how do we identify those individuals? Does it work where? I mean, Just because it works in the Piedmont of North Carolina doesn't mean it has to work in London, right? I mean, maybe it doesn't work there. Maybe it can, but um, it's it's not like, you know, asking a question about a medication. Does Clozapine work or not? If it works, it probably should work for schizophrenia in London, and it should work in, in Albuquerque. But this isn't like Clozapine. This is a very different kind of thing. And does it work, how? And for how long, how long should it be kept in place? I mentioned that before. And does it work, so what? If it does, should we do it? That doesn't necessarily mean we should do it. I mean, there are a lot of things. You could People could argue, you know, capital punishment works. Should we do it? I don't think so. Um, and I don't care about the evidence. What I care about in that sense is, I mean, I am morally opposed to out. And some people may not be. I am. So um, there, you know, the, the ethical issue of, uh, and the normative impairment may be a different one. Um, so is outpatient commitment ethical? How can we tell? Well, you know, you could start with the principles of uh, Beecham and Chilvers. Uh, you know, bio- bioethicists who've talked about these principles for guiding uh, decisions in healthcare, and and uh, they talk about respect for autonomy. Uh, and persons and you know, individual uh, decision making. Non-maleficence means don't harm people. Um, and uh, beneficence means help people, provide benefits and balance benefits against risk. And justice, uh, there are different ways of defining that, but fairness in, in the distribution of benefits and burdens and risks. The justice argument was brought up in a, in a class action lawsuit in New York um, that, was, that was filed on behalf of a group of, pa- of people with mental illnesses who needed services and couldn't get them and felt that they were actually being uh, disadvantaged because all of the good stuff was going to the outpatient commitment group, right? I wanna get a case manager, I can't get one, and here's this person who comes to the head of the line with a court order and now we're, you know, we're privileging the involuntary sector at the expense of the voluntary um and so that that you know is that fair i mean uh, that was interesting i um, was a um i was subpoenaed to testify in that lawsuit um and my colleague uh who was the co-author on the same report was the key um expert witness you know for the defense and so we had an interesting uh, situation in terms of our, our two different testimonies. But um, I think now to answer the ethical questions really is one of the things you have to do is you have to focus on the people who are experiencing this. You can't just look at cost and hospitalization and arrests and the things that the systems care about. You have to actually look at the people and ask a question about their subjective quality of life and do they think it's beneficial to them. And what would they prefer, right? Would you prefer to stay out of the hospital, or would you prefer to avoid an outpatient commitment order? And so we've done some studies of this. I'm just going to mention briefly what we found. It's not necessarily all that encouraging, uh, and you get a different answer. So we asked people in North Carolina, after they'd been on outpatient commitment, do you endorse this uh, personally? Do you think this is beneficial for you? Should this have been done for you? 27% of the samples said yes. It's a lot who didn't. And then we stratified it into those who had negative outcomes on outpatient treatment, those who had positive outcomes. Now you get this little split. 45% of the people who stayed out of the hospital didn't get arrested. They had good GAF scores, global assessment of functioning at the end of the year. Now you go up to 45%. You're still going you know, to get beyond 50%. So if, we have to out, if we have to actually justify this policy solely on the basis of the post- a commitment experience of people in North Carolina, you wouldn't get there, right? So you have to put this together with uh, other ways of thinking about it. Here's another way of thinking about it, and that is whether you think it's beneficial or not, which would you prefer? Well, how important is staying out of the hospital versus avoiding an AOT order? And there's no comparison there. The, the preference weight, the magnitude, the salience of staying out of the hospital, much more important to people than having this tincture of coercion for an outpatient commitment order. What about subjective quality of life? We had a measure of that, just people's you know, subjective quality of life after – Twelve months of experiencing outpatient commitment, and we actually found a positive, statistically significant correlation between the number of days people had on outpatient commitment and their subjective quality of life, controlling for where it was at baseline. Now, it's a little more complicated than that because okay, there is this indirect effect that we uh, that we specified and described statistically that more days on AOT means that you get Uh, more services, and the more services that you get, the more people's symptoms decrease, and and decrease in symptoms actually, um, you know, improved quality of life. But there was also a negative indirect effect, and that is the more days on outpatient treatment people had, the higher their score on perceived coercion, and that's a bad thing for quality of life. And So you think, well, this is kind of a weird paradox. How can it be beneficial through this positive indirect pathway of increasing your service use, decreasing your symptoms and so you have better quality of life. But at the same time, you're feeling more coerced and the more coerced you feel, the worse your quality of life is. Well really that's no different than lots of medicines that people are prescribed, which provide a benefit and they have a side effect. And what do you do when you decide if you want to take a medicine? You decide if the benefit outweighs the side effects. There are people who say, I don't want to take that pain medication because it makes me too sleepy and I would rather tolerate the pain than be so sleepy all the time. I mean I have had this conversation with with my dad for example. And you know that so so how you decide is sometimes an individual matter but we can describe it for this whole uh, sample here and it turns out that the effect size of that indirect benefit from decreased symptoms is about twice as great as the effect size for the negative effect of increased perceived coercion. So you could conclude that the, you know, the benefits probably outweigh it, they're on balance. Um, is AOT fair in terms of the people it's assigned to? There was an article written in New York that uh, accused the AOT program of being very racist because if you look at the whole population of New York, you're five times more likely they said, the New York lawyers for the public interest, to get an AOT order if you're black than if you're white. Um, and if you think about patient commitment as coercive and you're just piling more coercion on a group of people who historically have been oppressed, that doesn't sound good. Um, we sort of interrogated that factor, and that, uh, that um, finding and kind of deconstructed, I'm gonna show you that in a minute, and then the cue jumping, I mentioned that in the past. You know, if, if you're waiting in line, figuratively to get outpatient commitment and then not uh, people with the court order come to the front of the line, is that fair? So here's the findings from the racial disparities paper. So if you if you recalculate the racial disparities of outpatient commitment using different denominators. So instead of using the whole population of New York, you use the population um, so that would be the county population, seven to one. So that looks like a real disparity. But if you look at the population of people who have serious mental illness, then it goes down. If you look at the pop county population who are in the public behavioral health system receiving OMH services, now it's two to one. And if you look at the county population of people who have been involuntarily hospitalized, the racial disparity completely disappears. It doesn't mean that there aren't racial disparities in discrimination. It means they're upstream in the system. They're not at the point of the decision maker who's deciding, am I going to put this person or this person out an outpatient care. By the time you get to that decision making process, the whole population has been sorted and because of the correlation between poverty and race, it's gonna be racially imbalanced. And that's the way, so the way to remedy that is not so easy as to say, well, let's train people not to be racially biased in their giving of AOT orders. It's to think about the whole system and thinking about the much more difficult question of poverty and discrimination and race and how those are related. Um, So ethically, just, and I'll wrap this up in a minute, you know, um, outpatient commitment does involve overriding people's choices We can't get around that and I think it shouldn't be applied to people who are willing to seek treatment voluntarily and they simply need help accessing that treatment. They just need someone to help them overcome those barriers to care, whether it's transportation or financing or reminders or something. So if someone is willing to participate in treatment voluntarily and an ACT team can do that, then they shouldn't actually have an AOT order. Uh, although it's, easy, it's easier to say that than to do it. A court order alone doesn't magically remove those barriers either. At the same time, there are legitimate ethical reasons for overriding some people's expressed choices. Safety and welfare is one, and people who lack capacity to make and communicate authentic decisions, that's another one. Um, And uh, the the, the, uh, ethicist, uh, Dan Brock, did I get that right? Um, Yeah, so um, the uh, the, uh, ethicist, whose name is Dan Brock, um, wrote about, uh, well, this is a slightly different context, but I think it's very apropos here that there are three scenarios, at least, for overriding someone's choice uh, is warranted, and one is where there are good reasons to doubt that the the patient's manifest decision to go without treatment is an accurate reflection of what that person would want in a non-impaired state. So it's the really the illness talking. That is one where it's justified. The second is where the moral authority of the patient's treatment refusal is questionable due to conflict with important interests of the patient. So if 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 I if the patient is refusing treatment that is just manifestly not in their best interest, and at least you have to question that um, and uh, wonder about the authority of that a choice. That's a tricky one. Um, but this, and the third one is when the interests of the person other than the patient warrant overriding patient choices. Sometimes there are other people involved, right? I mean, we all have rights in our society, but that, my, my right to wave my fist is going to stop just short of Niels's nose because no his, his, <laughs> he has the right not to have his nose punched. So those rights to conflict. And um, so um, just to end here, Robert Miller, this is three decades ago, uh, wrote an article and, and in which he said, you know, the three things that are needed for outpatient commitment to succeed, rigorous empirical research, because we have to determine how effective it is, and can be, and for what type of patients or or, uh, uh, consumers. And and number two, we're gonna need support from community-based clinicians. If they don't believe in it, if they don't think it's gonna work, it's never gonna get any traction. Number three, we need sufficient resources to permit adequate treatment to be provided. That's a big one. Otherwise, he said outpatient commitment is all too likely to remain a theoretical, but not a practical alternative to revolving door hospitalizations and community neglect. And that's kind of where he ended. And, uh, you know, with that, I'm going to end. And I did leave some questions up here. They're kind of keyed to Robert Miller's questions, but I'm sure that you'll have others. But thanks so much for listening, and I'm happy to, to, to participate in any discussion as much time as we have. Thank you, Doc. What questions do you guys have for Dr. Swanson? You guys can chat them in or unmute
1: Dr. Burad, Psychiatry. I had a question about uh, resources for people in the community to find uh, these sorts of uh, centers for their patients or to advocate for their patients uh, if they're not sure how to access those kinds of services, if they're already on like an AOT. So, uh,
0: So the question is, I guess from the point of view of a clinician who might have a patient who that,
1: who person, that still needs higher level of service, yeah, and the patient them. is willing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think we, I think you put your finger on a problem. It's much easier to um, to 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 yes. And let's just admit that um, there are there are many people who could benefit from a um, higher level of service in the community. Then, then, this, then the that exceeds the capacity of the system to provide that, and whether you're talking about, um, you can talk about it across the continuum of care from the lack of psychiatric beds for people who are more acutely ill. That's why we have people sometimes being boarded in emergency departments because there isn't a bed for them. Uh, take that into the community, and you have um, you know people who are uninsured and can't afford medications, you have people who, um, you know, they, they, might, they might be able to benefit from treatment, but they are residentially unstable and they have all kinds of problems. Or they're in the criminal justice system. You have somebody with schizophrenia who's locked up in jail. That's a terrible place to be for someone who's sick. But a lot of people like that. We more people in jails, in the big city jails, than we ever had in the largest asylum in the middle of the 20th century, which I think is scandalous. So I, I don't know, I mean, I would be, I'd be uh, eager to hear from any clinicians, um, you know, what, what, what the recipe is for advocating for and getting uh, a, a high level of service for uh, a person who's willing to get it, um, but um, how do you do that? And I Are think- Are there
1: certain states that have like a registry for it? Or a way to access or look it up in some way?
0: Well, it's going to vary from state. Yeah, it's going to vary from state to state. I think I would look to the states that have the, um, in terms of AOT and how that interacts with intensive services. I would look to the states that have the most experience doing it uh, with the appropriate resources. And I, do you want to say anything about New York, for example? You just experienced Europe in New York and had some experience with AOT. Experienced AOT SEND? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, as a as a as a forensic psychiatrist. Um, uh, yeah. So in New. That's in, what the experience I mean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, in New York, as far as services and with AOT, um, each in New York City, each uh, borough has their own AOT. So you apply for AOT through that specific borough. If you have someone who's on AOT. Uh, on an AOT order and they they will either have an ICM uh, or an ACT team for their services and if uh, the person is having, the, the AOT provider is having a difficult time with the patient then they have also a direct connection to someone through AOT for that specific borough to reach out to and either say this isn't working or this is working and to try to find other services. Just to add to New
0: York um, York experience, one of the papers we did in evaluating uh, AOT in New York was, I think, kind of innovative. It hasn't gotten much attention, but um, it, it, it focused a study on not all the people in AOT, but all of the other people in the OMH service system with the same disorders who shared the same system of care with the people in AOT, and who eventually would get ACT or ICM, And what we did is try to answer two questions. What was the impact of someone who's eventually gonna get uh, an ACT team or intensive case management? Uh, How long do they have to wait and does that wait time increase as a function of how many of these involuntary AOT orders are coming into the system? The second question is, if you're already on an ACT team and you're already getting an intensive case management and you don't have an AOT order, does your chance of losing that Increase as a function of all of these involuntary treatment orders coming in. And what we found, if you just looked at the first three years of the program, it looked like a serious queue jumping issue because the people who didn't get AOT orders were, had significantly longer wait for AOT, for, for ACT, and for ICM than the AOT people. They really, they, the, all those new slots first went to the people on the court orders. And at the same time, we found people's chance of losing a actor, ICM, increased month by month as a, as a function of how many of those orders were coming in. Now, what happened was, though, if you look at a 10 year span of time, beyond the first three years when there was this startup and this big bolus of people, and you saw people improving, graduating from AOT, the system equilibrated. So that in the end, there was more ACT and ICM and intensive services available for people with and without AOT and their chances of getting it actually increased, uh, even though they didn't have an AOT order. So I thought that was kind of an interesting effect on the system that, that, that you know, it's kind of complicated to explain, but I think that's why it's important to look long term at evaluating an AOT order if it's done on any big scale.
1: I have a follow-up question sure. to that, Bridget McCoy, UNM Psychiatry. Um, along those lines, with the t- with the timing, yes. there seems to be in the data that you are presenting a clear switch at this 180 day mark. Do you have any? Is there any research looking at the other end and like at the yes. point where it starts to fall off or
0: not have any sort of a so, positive effect mm, anymore? Yeah, So for, first, on the on the clear switch, I, it's a little bit artificial to say six months. Yes or no? There's actually a continuous distribution, and we kind of cut it arbitrarily at six months and looked at before and after because it's that's the or, that's the length of the order and that's kind of when you renew it. But actually, you could see in the analysis that I showed for the out for the um, quality of life that I actually looked at that in that analysis at number of days of AOT in a continuous way, and and it was a continuous linear relationship, not six months or not. So there's, there's that. I would think about it as it's just the, you know, the longer, uh, quote, the better, at least at that initial period. We, we didn't have the opportunity to follow the North Carolina people beyond that, but we did in New York because they had these records. And we um, did look at the periods following um, um, you know, the, the, the end or the graduation or the, you know, the stop of the OT order. And the basic finding is that measured in terms of hospitalizations, the people who got an initially longer period, a renewed period, did better after it ended than people who got a shorter period. So the the benefits persisted and they were related to kind of how much a person got the first time around. Okay. What other questions for Dr. Swanson?